0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, January the 13th, 2022. It is currently 4.18 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And welcome back to another Bible study exercise in the book of Obadiah. This is part five and I really feel like I feel like we were off to such a great start. I really did I, I think we did a great job with kind of doing the overview. I think I think there was a lot of good things we did at the beginning. And then yesterday, which the you know which what I uh, what I really wanted to happen, in fact, a, what a lot of this I wanted to happen was I wanted a lot of the study to be done right here from the pulpit of Victory Baptist Church with people present. I wanted us to do the overview to get there's a lot of things I wanted the people here present for, but because of some situations with COVID in our current area and with people in the church, we've had, we, we, well, we don't have a lot of choices currently because of some of the situations. So that kind of messed everything up. And I hate when it messes everything up like right in the middle of one of our Bible study exercises. So I feel like we were, we, we, in in fact, or I feel like in spite of everything that has happened, that in fact, we've done a, a pretty good job. But then yesterday, everything got messed up, which was supposed to be our Wednesday evening service. Everything got messed up because well of my issues that I have with uh, seizures and some neurological issues. So everything kind of got messed up. So I feel like, okay, what do we need to do? How can we move forward? It's Thursday, right? Now, I got to stress that it's Thursday. Remember, this Bible study exercise would be scheduled to, to end. Basically, Saturday would be the last day, and then Sunday, we would be picking up a new Bible study exercise. Now, I may use some of the time Sunday to do a little bit more work on Obadiah, and then Sunday I will introduce the next week's study. It looks like next week we'll be in, in the book of Genesis. We'll be going back to the book of Genesis and we'll see what we have, what's in store for us. It it should be interesting. But I, I've i been struggling. In fact, even yesterday when I was here, I, I wasn't able to go live, but while well, the time I was here, I was just looking at everything with Obadiah going, okay, exactly what should I do next? What should I do? Exactly how should I proceed forward. So in a sense, we're going to go backwards. Now, stay with me. Then we're going to jump forward and we're going to really dedicate this episode to one concept. And the reason we're going to do this is because there was a concept in Obadiah that also showed up in our little mini detour where we talked about Lucifer is not Satan. And we reviewed that crazy audio from what Skywatch TV that was crazy. But the same subject showed up in that discussion as well and it shows up in Obadiah. Now maybe I'm doing this out of order, but just I just hope that this will I hope this will the reason I guess in some sense I'm doing this out of order is because I want to ensure that we do have time to get to it. I don't want to take any any chance of well now what do we do? We've kind of reached the end of the week do we do we expand? and have two Bible study exercises going on, instead of trying to figure out all of those things, I just want to at least jump ahead and at least ensure that you have this concept down to the best of my ability. So here's what we're going to do. First of all, I'm going to remind you of the memory verse for this week, all right? The memory verse this week is Obadiah chapter one, verse one. I have not done done sufficient work on it, um, my Bible, the Bible memory app is still sending me notifications for Micah five two, which is great, but that indicates that I haven't done enough work on Obadiah, the memory verse in Obadiah, that the notifications have switched over to sending me notifications about reviewing Obadiah. It's sending me reviewing notifications for Micah because I haven't gone through the app enough to get it to the point where it's sending me those review notifications. So, um, I need to get to work on that. I may have to work on that this evening, uh, late tonight, maybe tomorrow. I don't know, but I definitely want to get it memorized, and hopefully you do as well. So we're going to memorize it. Uh, we're gonna. We're not gonna. We're not gonna memorize it now. We're gonna read the memory verse, talk about it briefly, then we're gonna. We're gonna pick up one commentary. We're going to kind of just read some of the things they have to say just a little bit to kind of just ease us back in. I may remind you of our outline, just some like very preliminary thoughts, just preliminary thoughts. And then we're going to go right, right to the topic at hand that I think, I hope will be beneficial to everyone. I, I hope it will be beneficial to everyone. So are you ready? Does that, I hope that all makes sense. In other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is it feels a little disjointed and I'm aware of that and I apologize considering how good of, I thought we got off to a great start and then, you know, that one little kind of mess up on Wednesday where I wasn't able to do anything, just that one day just kind of gives me that feeling of everything being disjointed. It may be a perception that does not necessarily represent reality but it's one that I'm willing to acknowledge, so are you ready to try to do this? Let's start with our memory verse this week. Obadiah. I know what you're saying. You could have just started with that and not go through all of that. I know, but i'm trying I'm trying to just explain the the way things feel and then try to work past that. okay here we go Obadiah chapter one our when I say chapter one, Obadiah verse one is our memory verse, all right because obviously just it's just Obadiah. there's not chapters. Obadiah 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor that the Lord, we have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. That is Obadiah Verse one, let me read it to you again. The vision of Obadiah, That, that really, that the reason we're memorizing verse one is it really establishes so much about the whole book. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. So there's a vision given to Obadiah that basically contains the word of God regarding Edom. This is a prophecy given to Obadiah pertaining to edom we have heard a rumor from the lord or we've heard a message from the lord i think is how some translate it an ambassador is sent among the heathen arise ye let us rise up against her and battle It's it's a call okay everyone rise up let's gather together we're gonna go against edom This is a judgment against Edom. And we talked about the history and origin of Edom and we talked so much about it. Now, remember our outline is pretty simple and pretty straightforward. I think the one that we have kind of, the one that we've kind of decided to go with is is this, Obadiah, we have verses one through nine. We kind of have this, the prediction of judgment against Edom. It's kind of like the prediction, this is going to happen to Edom. As verses one through nine. This is a prediction. It talks about what will happen. Then verses 10 through 14 is uh, a the reason for judgment. This is more of a denunciation and, and explains why it will happen, or it's an explanation. I think oh, we refer to it as an explanation. So 1 through 9 is a prediction. What will happen, it predicts judgment upon Edom. Verses 10 through 14 is an explanation of why it will happen. It's reasons for judgment against Edom. If I said Israel, I apologize. And then verses 15 through 21, we're referring to this as the day of the Lord. And this is the conclusion of the judgment against Edom. This is the conclusion of that judgment, which seems to take us way beyond the, the time frame of Obadiah to something that clearly involves some things happening in the future. All right? So we have kind of a 1 through 9 is the prediction part, predicting judgment. 10 through 14 is the explanation part, giving the reasons for judgment against Edom. Ten through 15 through 21 is the day of the Lord. It is the conclusion of judgment on Edom, and it goes well beyond that. It's the conclusion. All right? I, think, I think that's a, a decent outline. Some people offered some additional thoughts um, on this in, in the Discord channel. Uh, some people added some possible sub points, and everything was, was very good. Everyone did a great job really trying to get the text on paper and, and get it written down. And hopefully everyone has benefited from that exercise. If you're in, if you haven't been a part of that discussion, what well, you missed out. Okay. Now, what we're going to do here, I'm just going to go back, and I'm, I'm using, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I've got a couple of resources here, but I'm just going to use for this one, just to try to kind of get us through some of this. And I've referred to some of this already in the past, but just to try to ease us into this. Okay. Um, this is from the Way of Life Commentary. All right, actually, we're not going to get very far, but I'm just going to read a little bit of this, all right? All right, we don't know anything about Obadiah other than the fact that he was a prophet. The name Obadiah means worshiper of Jehovah. Now, four times we are told that Obadiah was speaking God's word, and they point to the following verses. Obadiah 1, 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord. Here are God's words concerning Edom, right? There, there's the first place where it seems to occur. Verse 4 seems to be the second place. Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, this will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. So a second time we are told these are God's words, Right? verse eight I believe is the third place this occurs shall I not in that day saith the Lord even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount uh, out, out of the mount of Esau once again saith the Lord one more time occurs in verse I believe 18. Badiah chapter one, I believe it's verse 18. Let me look here to verify. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble. They shall kindle in them and devour them and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord hath spoken it. So at least four times, this commentary points out, um, We are told Obadiah was speaking God's word. Now, I just want to stress that for a couple of reasons. I know that generally we just know, oh, yes, all of the Bible is God's inspired word. Yeah, I know we know that, but I like to be reminded, especially when, when, when we are in the major and minor prophets, I like to be reminded over and over, this is God's words. These are God's words. These are God's words. And the reason I want to emphasize that is because when we get tempted to go, well, wait a minute, let's spiritualize this. Let's allegorize that. Let's say that that didn't really, and we start doing whatever we want with it. We've got to be reminded. It's almost like a slap in the face. Wait, 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 wait. Who are you to start messing with God's words We've got to try to figure out what is said and what is meant by what is said and not just start trying to manipulate to make it say what we want it to say. They're not our words. We don't own them. We don't control them. We don't have the right to change them. I think that's very important. So just remember that Obadiah, even though it seems like an insignificant book because of its size, it may be considered the minor of the the minor prophets, it's still god's words concerning edom right and i think that's very important all right um now they go on and say a lot of things about that but i'm not going to uh i'm not going to spend i'm not going to read everything they have to say there now obadiah's prophecy is from the lord god now the word lord there adonai God, Jehovah, Jehovah, you know, the whole discussion and how to say it. We won't get into all of that. Adonai emphasizes the fact that God is the Lord, the ruler over all, the king of kings. He created man and has the right to rule and judge man. Jehovah, Jehovah, is God's covenant name with Israel, emphasizing that God is the faithful covenant-keeping God, the redeemer, the God who will judge the world and the day of the Lord, uh, will judge the world and the day uh, of the Lord, is the God who died for many sins and commanded that the gospel be preached to every nation. He who who he who would save all men is perfectly just in judging those who refuse his salvation. And so they emphasize here in Obadiah chapter one, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God, Adonai and Jehovah. All right. You you can you can emphasize you can Determine the significance of that. I know we have not discussed that, but you can. Just saying, and I, I just think it is interesting. It's like he is the sovereign ruler over everything, but Jehovah connects him with Israel. So th- I think that's interesting when you're dealing with Edom and all of the, pro- I, I, with their is- issues with Judah. I, I think you could you could see why that could all come into play. And I think that's important. Now, the theme of the prophecy is God's judgment on his enemies. Now, when it's, I think it's interesting. They say the theme of the prophecy is God's judgment on his enemies and Israel's restoration. So this commentary wants us to go that this goes beyond just Edom. This is this is judgment upon God's enemies. That that this needs to be understood in a broader context. And it also includes the restoration of Israel. This is how they break it down. Verses 1 through 16 is God's judgment on his enemies. Verses 17 through 21 is Israel's restoration. Now, I have to stop here and emphasize this. Because this is so important when it comes to, again, hermeneutics. So many times when we are in the major or minor prophets, I think most of you now, we've, you've been with me through our studies in Isaiah Micah, now Obadiah, I think you you should have yourself trained now to know what I'm getting ready to say, okay? So many times, and, and this drives me crazy in, in theological circles, especially in the amillennial world, and many of those in the reform world who, who get very upset with me but because they they, they want to accuse me of, of who knows what, but this is just basic Bible interpretation 101 to me. If the judgment. Against the nations. I don't care if it's Babylon. I don't care if it's Tyre. I don't care if it's Edom. I don't care who it is. If that judgment mentioned in a chapter is literal judgment against a literal nation, then why is it when in that very same chapter where it may speak of the restoration of Israel, it's no longer literal Israel. It's spiritual Israel. And it's no longer the restoration of a nation. It's the restoration of sinful people basically into the church. Why is it that the judgment is always literal? Literal judgment, literal nation, literal destruction. But when it comes to the restoration of Israel, then all of a sudden we get wishy-washy and go, well, that's not actually national Israel. That's spiritual Israel. And this just refers to people getting saved in the church. It doesn't talk about, and you're like, wait a minute. How did we go from literal to spiritual, literal to figurative, literal to allegorical, all within the same chapter? And, that that question should be asked by anyone and everyone because it's a hermeneutical it's not even an issue about the end times it's not an es, it's not a question of eschatology it's a question of bible interpretation I've tried to make that so clear to everyone when they get into these never ending debates about eschatology and bible prophecy and, and accusing people of being you know well you're a dispensationalist you're one of those crazy left behind people just just don't allow any of that to intimidate you Say, no, 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 I'm one of those people who care about interpreting my Bible correctly. And you just played this little game where this part was very literal. And then magically, the literal went away. And it appears the only reason it went away is because you told me it went away. You didn't provide me any textual reason for changing my interpretation method. So I, I, I cannot stress that. I, I cannot stress that enough. So let me read to the to this again. Read this again to you. According to this commentary, the theme of the prophecy is God's judgment on His enemies, verses one through sixteen, and Israel's restoration, seventeen through twenty-one. Now let's just go to Obadiah one. Let's just jump all the way down. Now we, we clearly know that we have Edom here. Edom is in trouble. Edom is going to be destroyed. There's judgment coming. I, I don't think there's any way to get around that. Okay. Now, let's go down to verse 17. But it, I think it's also interesting that it maybe does it go beyond Edom because you have in verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. Now, that seems to go beyond Edom. So does it include Edom? Does it include other nations? And if it does, and it includes judgment, is that judgment literal, literal nations, literal destruction? Now, they say if you jump down to Verse 17 is where they want us to go to that now it comes to the restoration of Israel. Look at the language that is used. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they that of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau, and they of the plain, the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of the host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto uh, Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in uh, uh, Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south and Savior shall come up on the Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, a lot of places listed, a lot of things going on there, but it does seem to seem to imply in some way Israel being back in possession, Israel being somehow in charge. They're not subjected to anyone. They're now subjecting everyone to them. All right, well, is that restoration in anyone in any way, shape, or form? Literal and if it is well, that would make sense, considering the judgment seems to be literal i'm gonna go do this really quick. didn't think about it. I'm just gonna put i'm gonna put Obadiah i'm gonna go to google i'm gonna type in Obadiah, and maybe I'll just go one i'm gonna go one seventeen. I know I shouldn't even do it that way, but let's see if it works. yeah, it brings me to uh to the biblehub.com. All right, here we go. I'm going to, I see, I think the the commentary said verse 17. I'm going to read all of these verses and a variety of translations. I'm going to read them in a variety of translations because I think this will just give us an idea of what's being said here. So Obadiah will say 117 or just Obadiah 17. Here we go. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. New Living Translation. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place. And the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. Now that really stresses it. There's some kind of restoration going on here. Well, Has it happened? When did it happen? If it hasn't, wait a minute, was the judgment literal? Yes, judgment is literal. We know when, when Edom face these, well, multiple times, but we know ultimately when they're kind of destroyed, we have a pretty good idea. We We can get dates down for some of that. Literal destruction, literal enemies coming against them. Well, then somehow we're gonna have to find Jerusalem is gonna become a refuge for those who escape. And it's gonna be a holy place and the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance, ESV. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Right, let's go to verse eighteen Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame Esau will be stubble they will set him on fire and destroy him there will be no survivors from Esau the Lord has spoken New living translation the people of Israel will be a raging fire Edom a field of dry stubble the descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field devouring everything there will be no survivors in Edom the Lord have has spoken, or have spoken, the way the New Living Translation puts it. Again, this seems to show Israel rising up, Edom being destroyed. Verse nineteen, uh, according to these other, say how did the, the King James says from the south? All right, the other translation says people from Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. New Living Translation, then my people living in Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistines' plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. Again, God's people, Israel's back in power, uh, possessing land, you get the idea. Verse 20, the company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shepard will possess the towns of the Negev, the uh, the living trans New Living Translation. The exiles of Israel will return to their land, occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home and resettle the towns of the Negev. Now this is giving places, rest- this is all about some kind of restoration. Verse 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. New Living Translation, those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom and the Lord himself will be king. Well, it seems like Israel's going to be back in power and God's going to be reigning there in Israel. Well, when did that occur? When did all of that supposedly happen? When? Now, the, the, again, you either have to just spiritualize this to no end, that, that when it's naming these places and, and, and nations, none of that's literal, it's all figurative, and that this is going to be accomplished through the church spreading the gospel. That's how some people would try to address it. That just doesn't make any sense, considering the judgment against Edom was literal and the destruction was literal. So then the restoration of Israel has to be literal. I know I have to stress that every time we get into this, but if I don't, well, then that just puts you vulnerable for all of the different theologies there. Now, I spend all of the time doing that because of this. All right, here we go. The theme of the prophecy is God's judgment on his enemies, verses 1 through 16. And Israel's restoration, 17 through 21. I know I kind of jumped to the end, but that's okay. The prophecy looks beyond historical events to the day of the Lord in the end times. And they reference Obadiah 1.15. Let me read it to you again. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. And as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee that reward shall shall return upon thine own head. They argue that there's the historical things going on in the text. Historical judgments, historical destruction things are, and those things are historical. In other words, we can look back and see when those things were fulfilled they were going to happen soon, but it goes beyond the historical context and it jumps to this thing called the day of the Lord that they refer to in this commentary as, uh, in the end times. It is a warning of the coming judgment, which will fall upon the whole world of unrepentant men and rebellious nations. It is a warning to those who think that God is not a god of judgment. It is a warning to all who are proud. It is a warning to all of Israel's enemies. So it's a warning that goes beyond just Edom. It's a warning to all of God's enemies. It's a warning to all those who are repent to will not repent. It's a warning to all those who are arrogant and proud. Now, uh I see here. Oh, there's so much more. I want to see. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to jump down about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. God's judgment. I'm I'm jumping down in the commentary to to verse 15. Their commentary on, on Obadiah 115 or Obadiah verse 15. God's judgment will fall upon all the heathen this is from, uh, this is, uh, from uh, the Hebrew word uh, a- a- that is also translated Gentile, right? So in other words, that, that, that the heathen world could be referring to all of the Gentile world, okay? N- that could possibly make sense. It refers to the nations that are outside of God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nations that do not know Jehovah God and that worship false gods. The wrath of God will be upon all nations. Revelation describes worldwide judgments Revelation 6 through 16 in other words chapter 6 through uh, chapter 16 But Obadiah focused particularly on the heathen now uh, this is what they this is how they describe it that joined the antichrist in attacking Israel now I'd put a question question mark upon that okay that that gets into a lot of a lot of uh presupposition maybe we can say this clearly obadiah focuses on edom but it does seem to go that here in obadiah 15 that it goes beyond edom to all the heathen right okay i think i think we can agree there um they have here that it's going to that they're particularly on the heathen that joined the antichrist and attacking israel they have drunk Upon many, uh, my holy mountain. This is a, uh, refers to violence upon the Jews in Jerusalem and the land of Israel during the tribulation when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel and turns on her. They say this is described in Matthew twenty four fifteen through twenty one, Daniel nine twenty seven, Zechariah fourteen one through seven. The drunkenness possibly refers to drunken parties to celebrate victory over Israel. Now. Let me go back to read Obadiah 15 again for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen oh verse or for okay I'm going to read it again verse 15 for the day of the Lord is upon all the heathen as thou hast done it shall be done unto thee thy reward shall be shall return upon thine own head for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain so shall all the heathen drink continually yea they shall drink. And they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. So whoever these nations are, they've been drinking somehow on the holy mountain, but now they are going to drink in such a way, they're going to drink judgment, they're going to drink God's wrath, seems to be the idea here, all right? Um, let's see, where else do they go here, all right? They... Um, I thought see there's a place I thought they were going to jump to here they don't jump to it here at this point I thought they were going to jump to it but they don't there's a there's a lot here I could jump down to and look at but I'm going to back up here and do this all right because there's there's a a possible there's a possible passage in the New Testament that I'm that I'm I want to jump to but I'm going to try to I'm going to try to pull back and keep myself from going there right now. I want to do this. I want to go back to Obadiah 1, verse 15. For the day of the Lord, I want us to spend a little time. We've already talked about this once in kind of our overview, but I want to talk about, again, the day of the Lord, and I'm, I'm going to use a commentary on the book of Joel, and I'm going to go there to kind of do a little bit of a, 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 at least one perspective on the day of the Lord. I told you there are there are multiple perspectives. We're going to look at one. So, I'm going to go to a commentary. I've got it marked here. And we're going to see everything they have to say. All right. And I need you to put your thinking caps on here. All right. Um, They're going to make lots. They're going to make lots of of claims here. And you can think about it. Now, here's the reason we're doing this. All right. We've talked about Edom. We we talked about there, there may be some time frames when these judgments happen and when Edom. These nations come against them and they're destroyed. We, we, can, we can try to figure out the historical setting. But when you get to the end of Obadiah, it seems to take a turn away from Edom and goes to this broader kind of concept called the day of the Lord. So we at least need to try to, and we talked about the day of the Lord in our in our little mini study on, you know, Lucifer is not Satan. They kind of mentioned it as well. So we want to try to get some some grasp on what this is or isn't because it it may be so integral to understanding so much of the Old Testament because the day of the Lord is mentioned a number of times. Let's see what this commentary does. All right. God uses, Now, they're, 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 this is a commentary on Joel 1, verse 15 to chapter 2, verse 11. We won't go there and read this right now. Just let's listen to what they have to say. God uses the judgment upon Israel of Joel's day to point to the greater judgment that is coming in the last days. Now, this seems to occur frequently. There's some kind of judgment, right? There's a judgment, but clearly it goes from that judgment and jumps, jumps to another judgment that is known as the day of the Lord or something future. Now, why is that significant? I'll go back to the same principle I've already mentioned now multiple times. If the first judgment is a literal judgment against a literal nation, whether it's Edom, whether it's Babylon, Assyria, doesn't matter whom. If we know that's to be a literal judgment, then that future judgment has to be literal as well. We can look to the past and go see how that judgment occurred. We can look to the future and go, it's going to have to be a similar literal judgment in the future. That's the way we do hermeneutics. Right Now, this is what they have to say the day of the Lord is the period of time in which God will judge the world and establish his kingdom on earth. It is called the Lord's day in contrast to man's day, which has lasted, well, depending on how you want to, to date things, they say 6,000 years. But let, let's just forget the dating, because again, that we can get into all kinds of other controversies about that. Just Set that aside. They say the day of the Lord is a period of time. So it covers more than just a day. It's a period of time which God will judge the whole world and establish his kingdom on earth. Now, if we put place this in a school of eschatology, we'll, this will go into a school of eschatology that calls for a literal millennial reign of Christ and that the day of the Lord happens prior to that. That there's a massive judgment that occurs prior to this, and then as a result of this judgment, sets up the millennial kingdom. All right? Does, does Does that make sense? Maybe. Let's see what else they have to say here. In the day of the Lord, God will be exalted and rebellious men will be humbled, and the throne of the world will belong to Christ. And the day of the Lord, the present idolatrous world system will be judged and overthrown and preparation for the establishment of Christ's kingdom. Once again, it's saying the same thing, just in a different way. Every, the world's power are going to be destroyed. Christ will then be placed on the throne, right? Which would call for then a literal reign of Christ. Now, of course, there's people whose theology don't buy into a literal reign of Christ is going to say that this, that that they're going to say some of these prophecies are fulfilled in the church where the gospel is, is spreading. Others will say the day of the Lord is just then limited to the final day where Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And it doesn't have anything. It just deals with the final day of judgment. The only problem is the day of the Lord, as mentioned in the Old Testament, usually involves the judgment of nations and destruction of nations, not just like Christ coming back to judge the living and the dead. It seems to be a judgment upon nations in a very literal way. So then, when does that occur and how does that fit in? Like, then you get into all of these kinds of discussions. Let, let's continue here. Um, the day of the Lord is it sometimes refers to one aspect of the work, particularly the great tribulation. They say sometimes when we see the phrase, phrase it only refers to that part of the great tribulation. Now, this gets into understanding that there's going to be a literal seven-year tribulation, which again, some people don't believe and some people do. In other places, it refers to the entire period, including the tribulation, the second coming, the millennial reign, and the eternal state following the white throne judgment. So they say in some places, it refers to everything. What happens before the millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne, and the eternal state. Wow, that that means the term, let's make it very clear, that there is seemingly much difficulty in interpreting the term because it seems to relate to many different things depending on the passage in which it is found. That that means we have to be very humble in how we approach the subject. They go on to say. um, Let's see, that... uh, the day of the Lord refers to historic judgments upon Israel that point to the final time of judgment. So like it can it can refer to it can even refer to historical judgments that actually happened, but then it points to a future judgment as well. So I mean that's just that's basically saying anything can really fit in historical judgments, future judgments it, it can really, the term seems to be able to be used for so many different things, which then makes it very dangerous and trying to interpret it and being dogmatic about it. But it's a term that we have to at least deal with. They go on to say this. They claim that if you were to read the book of Joel, we would find this. In fact, they, uh, I'm going to just, we'll go to the book of Joel. Let's just do this really quick. We'll go to the book of Joel just to show you why they are saying this. Go to the book of Joel. Because I think this will be uh, very helpful in seeing this play out. Or at least we'll see the scriptures that they use to try to prove their point. Whether you agree or disagree with it, that's okay. All right, The book of Joel, I keep going right past it. I know it's after Hosea. Here we go. Pages were sticking together. I'm like, where? Joel just disappeared from my Bible. All right, here we go. According to them, Joel 1, 15, Joel 1.15 reads like this. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Chapter two, verse one. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. Now, this is important because according to them, this teaches that the day of the Lord is at hand. I read, I'm going to read from this. They said, also see Isaiah 13, 6, Zephaniah 1, 7. This is a term that means it is imminent. It can happen at any time. Now, this is where you're like, well, wait a minute, if it can happen at any time, how does this work? Now, they go on, they they, they give all kinds of scriptures here, all kinds of scriptures. Um, they say the rapture of the New Testament saints is said to be at hand. The events of Revelation are at hand. Well, so... Would the day of the Lord, if it's at hand, are you saying like was when when it said that in Joel, is that a reference to things that were connected to the historical setting of Joel? Or do we are we supposed to just understand that the day of the Lord is at hand, that it's imminent no matter what time it is. It could happen at any time. In other words, it's imminent in this sense. It could happen at any time. And that would obviously then include, if you believe in a ra- in a rapture, it would include the rapture. Or do you ignore the rapture, ignore a seven year tribulation, ignore a thousand year reign of Christ, and just say Christ can come back at any moment in time? Well, that. Wait a minute. What about all the promises made to Israel? There's so many different directions you can go when dealing with eschatology. Second thing they say. The day of the Lord is a destruction from the Almighty, and they go back to Joel 1.15, that the day of the Lord is this. Alas, the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. That the day of the Lord, as they put it, is a destruction from the Almighty. That the day of the Lord involves destruction, judgment from the Almighty. They go on to say this. Joel introduces the day of the Lord with the words, alas, for the day. This is an utterance of great emotion. It usually indicates despair, but also a strong sense of marvel with fear. It can also indicate a feeling of inability or confusion. Joel says the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. The day of the Lord is a day of horrible judgment as described in the Old Testament prophets and Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24 and in Revelation 6 through 18, it is a day when God's anger towards sin and rebellion will be unleashed. Now, I'm going to look at something really quick. These, these are like, it's imminent, and it's a day of, as they say, it's imminent, but it's a day of destruction. It's a day of destruction. Well, if it's a day of destruction, we definitely want to know what it is. Um, yeah, see, they, I didn't I knew they were going to go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 just leads to all kinds of problems. Let me just make sure we understand, first and foremost, when you try to interpret Matthew 24, you have to first and foremost interpret it in a light of 70 AD, referring to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But we um, we don't have time to get into that right now. Okay, so according to them, The day of the Lord, no matter all, there's all kinds of scriptures that reference it and trying to figure it all out that that what they're saying at the very least, you would say it's something that's imminent. It could happen at any time and it involves destruction. Third, the day of the Lord will be upon the crops and cattle. They look at Joel one, I'm gonna go back to the book of Joel. Go back to the book of Joel, here we go. They say, look at verse 16. Verse 15, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. and It is destruction from the almighty shall it come. It is not the meat, is not the meat cut off before our eyes. Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid uh, desolate. The barns are broken down for the corn is withered. Now, again, I, I think in many cases, This is obviously referencing some historical judgment, but they're saying that it can encompass future as well and that the day of the Lord is going to be upon the crops and the cattle and that there will be famine. And they they would point to the book of Revelation for judgment against all of those things. Next, the day of the Lord will bring trembling, Joel 2, 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at at hand. It is a day of, it will bring a trembling. The tribulation is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. It will be a time of great persecution upon the Jews. Okay, again, let's just set that aside. According to Joel, it's, think of it this way. The day of the Lord, it is imminent, or is it, it's at hand. It is a day of destruction. It is a day that will be upon the crops and the cattle. There's gonna be there's gonna be judgment upon that. And it's a day that will be a day of trembling. All right. Joel 2 2. Joel 2 2 reads this a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. So they say another thing about the day of the Lord, it is a day of darkness. It is a day of darkness. Now, this is interesting because the day, uh, the darkness is mentioned many times in prophecy. The day of the Lord is described as very dark, Amos 520. The darkness will be caused by the darkness of the sun, moon, and stars. They give a number of scriptures here, Isaiah 13, 10. I won't even be able to read them all. There's so many, there's just so many, all the way going all the way to the book of Revelation. There's these prophecies about darkness, darkness, and that's associated with the day of the Lord. Uh, it appears the darkness will appear multiple times during the day of the Lord. The sun will be darkened at the beginning of the day of the Lord, uh, at the opening of the sixth seal, uh, which might correspond with Joel 2.10. And they go on and just over and over and over. There's all these things that seem to be, darkness is one of these things that's connected with it. All right. Now, you again, I just want you to get the basic... All I want you to do is go, Okay, when we talk about the day of the Lord, we can have these really like kind of more academic definitions. I want you to have down the day of the Lord involves. This is what I want you to do. It's imminent. It involves destruction. It involves judgment upon the cattle and the crops. It is a day of trembling and it is a day of darkness. I think that is appropriate here. All right. Um, Joel 2 2 says, let's go back to Joel 2 2. Joel 2 2 reads, A day of darkness and gloominess, gloominess a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a, and a strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. In other words, the day of the Lord is going to be a day that's unprecedented. It's a day like no other day before. There's going to be something totally unique about it, different from all of the other judgments and destructions that have occurred. All right? It will be worse than any trouble that has come upon the world since, they said, since the, the flood of Noah's day. So it's got to be something radically different than anything the world has ever seen or ever experienced uh Joel, and I won't read these just for uh for time's sake. Um, Joel two two through nine and verse twenty, the day of the Lord will be a day of war. It's also going to include war. It's going to include war. So the day of the Lord, let's go through these again it's at hand it's it's at hand, it's imminent. It's a day of destruction. It's a judgment upon crops and cattle. It will bring trembling. It's a day of darkness. It's a a day unprecedented. And it's a day of war. And they got lots of of scriptures here to talk about all the days of war. All right. Um, The day of the Lord will bring earthquakes. They have Joel 2.10 mentioned here. And then they also have uh, the day of the Lord uh, will bring earthquakes. I, I, if I didn't say that, when the day of the of the earth of the Lord will bring earthquakes, and I'm I'm looking at so many different things they mention here. I'm not going through every single thing. I'm just trying to give you the basic ideas. So, and that's Joel two ten. So it's going to involve earthquakes. Next, the day of the Lord will involve signs in the heavens. Joel two ten again, again. Joel two ten reads. Uh, the earth shall quake before them. The heaven shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw from their shining. Right. So the day of the Lord, let's go through all of these again. I know I keep repeating them, but I want you to have this down. It's imminent. It involves destruction. It involves judgment upon crops and cattle. It is a time of uh, trembling. It's a time of darkness. It's going to be unprecedented. It's a time of war. And it's a, a time of it's gonna bring earthquakes. And it will involve signs in the heavens. Okay, and I think I'm gonna stop there. They they go on and add a lot of more. I'm trying to stay away from all the things they add that I'm like, okay, well, that I'm trying to give you the general concepts because you can find those general concepts maybe in Revelation and other. Prophecies that seem to go well. Wait, that that seems to fit these basic descriptions of the day of the Lord. So, is that the day of the Lord? Is that the day of the Lord? Is that the day of the Lord? Well, when when is that going to occur? I, I think that is very important to see. And then I'm going to look at one other thing here. I don't know if it's in this book. Um, I don't think it's no. It's not mentioned here. I'm going to find it really quick. I thought it was in that commentary, but let me look at this really quick. Um, Give me one second. Because I think it's a a text that needs to be at least considered when we're talking about all of these passages um, and what what's referring to here. Um, Yeah, I think it's Matthew 25. I'm almost positive it's Matthew 25. Right. Let's go to Matthew 25. Because I don't, I just think that this cannot just be ignored. I, I, I just we have to mention it right here. Yes. Matthew 25. All right. Uh let's see, where does this happen here? Let me see if I can find it in the text. All right, here we go. Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 25. That will start start right here in verse 31. Okay, here we go. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now let's just try to put this together. Remember, the And Obadiah talks about this coming time where there's going to be judgment upon all of these nations. Joel talks about all of those things that we just referred to. There's this time of judgment of the nations that seems to be a common theme throughout the minor prophets and the major prophets. Now in Matthew, we have Jesus speaking, talking about there's going to come a time when the Son of Man is going to come in his glory. So this has to be second coming, all right, he's he's coming back and then he's going to sit upon the throne of his glory. Now, again, some people will say, "Well, that would be that would be setting upon the throne. Is this the millennial kingdom?" Some people say there is no millennial kingdom. There is no millennial kingdom. All right, well, then this is the second coming. There is no millennial kingdom. This is about going into heaven. All right, well, let's see how this works, all right? Verse 32. And before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This seems to be a judgment of nations. Wait, okay. Is is this a different judgment that I'm not aware of? Well, let's go through this. He shall set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then the righteous answering him, saying, Lord, When saw we thee hungered, and uh, fed thee, and uh, thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? So they're like, so there's this judgment happening. There's all these people set aside, like, okay, you guys can come in to the kingdom that was prepared for you. Okay, wait, is that heaven? Is this heaven? And why are they going to get into heaven? Well, because... Well, when they saw Jesus was hungry, they gave him food. When he was thirsty, they gave him drink. When he was a stranger, they took him in. And when he was without clothing, they clothed him. When he was sick, they visited him. And when he was in prison, they came unto him. So, in other words, they're going to get into heaven because of all of their good deeds? Well, this seems to be a judgment based off works. Wait. And now some people say, no, no, no. These things prove that they're saved. So now you're telling me what proves someone is saved? is all of their charity work. How much charity work have you done? Well, it's not that if you do it, it just means if you see someone like, okay, then, then it becomes like, once again, this very, how do you even know someone is saved? Now, now, well, how do you know you're saved? Not because of what Christ did, but because of what you do. It becomes all kinds of problematic. All right, but so they're like, so they're confused. Like, well, when did we do these things? When did When did we do these things for you? And uh, and Jesus answered and said unto him. The king answered, noting the king of a kingdom, I say unto you, in so much as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now, who do the brethren refer to? Who do the brethren refer to? Some will say that's referring to Israel. That's referring to the Jews. You, if you've treated Israel correctly then you're going to get into the kingdom. If you haven't, there's going to be judgment. Now, if you say this is heaven, then it's going to be a, 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 how people treat. So judgment is how you treat fellow Christians? Like how th- This gets into all kinds of questions about judgment, works, salvation by grace alone, not by works. Every, I mean, there's so many different interpretations on what to do here, all right? But I'm trying to connect it to all the things that we, remember, Edom is in trouble because of how they did what? How they treated Israel how they treated Judah. Okay. Now he goes, then he shall say unto them on the left, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you took me not in. Then uh, they shall answer that. When were these? And he says, verily, I say unto you, as much as you did it to not to one of the least of these, you did it unto me, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, some people think this is the judgment of the nations, and this judgment's going to be based on how they treated Israel, and this will occur right before the millennial kingdom. And this will be the judgment upon all the nations who are going to be punished for how they treated Israel. Now, some will say that's absolutely absurd. It's not. No, let me make it very clear. Whatever whatever interpretation you go with this, you're going to end up playing all kinds of games with the text. I'm I'm telling you, no matter what interpretation you go with, because here's how it's going to work. Okay, no, 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 no. See, this is a judgment. This This is just the, this is not a different judgment because some believe there's only one judgment. They don't believe there's different judgments. So they would say, no, this is just, this is just a, a descriptive way, a figurative way of saying that when you are judged, what's going to prove that you're saved is your works. And if you don't have these works, you're going to prove you were never saved. So this is, in a sense, you're going to be judged by your works because your works prove you're saved. Well, if my works prove that I'm saved, that means I have to have enough works in order to prove that I'm saved. And if I don't have those works, then I'm not saved, then I go to hell. So then am I saved by my works or by grace? I think, no, 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 you're saved by grace but that grace will produce works. Well, how many works do I have to have in order to be saved? And nobody can tell you it becomes this very relativistic, wishy-washy thing. Well, I mean, it's not that you're going to do this perfect all the time, but you're going to do it some of the time. Like, How how does that work? So you're going to have to play a lot of games there and, and still try to maintain that you're saved by grace alone, the faith alone. You could go from a more, say, a Catholic position, like, no, see, if you don't have works, you're not saved. If you don't do acts of charity, you're not saved. You're demonstrating you're not in a state of grace. You're committing a mortal sin. And then you're not in a state on and on. That was someone saying, see, this proves your salvation is by works, not by grace alone. All right. So so both sides are going to go with this. And then others come along and go, no, see, what's conf- you're getting confused. This is a judgment on the nations. Christ comes back judges the nations in regards to what they have or haven't done to Israel. Because if you bless Israel, you will be blessed. But if you've cursed Israel, you will be cursed. And many will say this fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies about all of these judgments upon all of these nations, in many cases, has never occurred in any meaningful way unless you allegorize it and make it figurative. They would say right here, all of that judgment upon the nations, it's going to happen right here. Christ is going to be on the throne and all of these nations are going to be judged and then destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire, thrown into hell. And then those who are left will enter into the millennial kingdom. Now, the only problem with this is, I think everybody knows what the problem with this is. Well, wait a minute. What happens at the end of the millennial kingdom? There's a war. Where did those people come from? Well, go to to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Okay. Now, if you go to chapter 19, Christ comes back and people are being destroyed all over the place. It's just massive destruction and death. It's horrible to even read. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy what is going on. All right. It's just horrific to read everything that's happening, okay? People are being slaughtered, and it's just, it's crazy. Read Revelation 19. It's absolutely frightening. Then you get to chapter 20, and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them, which were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshiped the beast, neither the image, neither had received the mark upon their uh, foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay, great. But the rest of the dead live not again until their thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed uh, and holy, I see that take part, and then, okay, they go on. Now, when the thousand years were expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Now, wait a minute. All the nations have been judged. So now these are the nations who treated Israel right. They're in the millennial kingdom. Now Satan comes and deceives all of those nations and they join in a battle and then they are all destroyed. What in the world? Where do they come from? Now, are these the nations that form during that thousand years? Here's a thousand years and these nations form during the millennial kingdom. But at the end of the millennial kingdom, they are deceived and they fight against God even after spending a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. Like there, there raises all kinds of questions there. I'm not even going to pretend that any of this is easy. But I just want you to know that when you're reading the Old Testament, you see these prophecies about all the nations are going to be judged and all the heathens are going to be judged. Well, wait a minute. There has to be some kind of literal judgment upon them, right? When is this going to occur? Well, if we, we, can, we can figure out the historical judgments going, okay, Edom was judged here. Okay, okay, wait, wait a minute. This is upon all the heathen, upon all the world. Well, when does that happen? How does that, how does that? And if you go back to Obadiah, already over an hour, if we go back to Obadiah, look what we read. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall, shall return upon thine own head. Sounds very much like Matthew 25. They're going to be judged based on what they've done. And in some cases, it seems related to how they what they have done to Israel. All I'm saying is, don't forget Matthew 25. That's all I'm saying. I'm not, I don't know what to necessarily do with it. I'm just saying that when you're talking about, man, this, the day of the Lord, it's going to come upon this. And it's going to be this and, this and this and this and this and this and this and this. It always seems to refer to judgment against nations. Well, when are the nations going to be judged? I'm not saying Matthew 25 is the best answer. But it has to be considered. All right, there we go. Nobody asked any questions. Either they're so confused or they're just so absolutely blown away by how clear I made all of this that they don't even have uh they don't even have a question. If you hear all that sound, I'm reaching over grabbing another commentary here cuz I'm just curious what this one does with Matthew. All right, here we go. Um Yeah, I'm just seeing uh, that in uh, Matthew, this oh, this commentary does it. When Jesus returns, it will be a time of separation. The wise will be separated from the foolish, the faithful servants from the unfaithful, the blessed sheep from the cursed goats. The wise virgins had oil and were prepared to meet the bridegroom. Many people profess to be Christians, but do not have the Holy Spirit and are not born again. They, they, uh, they might mingle with the say, but they are not really one of them and they will not enter into the marriage feast. His coming also means evaluation. As we wait for the Lord to return, we must invest our lives and earn dividends for his glory. Christ will give us opportunities that match our abilities and the one talent, and it goes on. And when Christ uh, returns, it will be a time of uh, commendation. We will be surprised to learn about ministries we perform that will be brought into. So, So they go on. Basically what they turn it into, Matthew 25 is the judgment The last is just the final judgment, and it's going to be based on a lot of what we do. We'll either be commended or we'll be condemned by what we do. So it's going to be a judgment based off works. We talked about this in our study way back in uh, Romans chapter 2. We spent forever going through all of this. It's the never-ending—it's just crazy that, that no matter what you study, you almost end up right back to this kind of struggle. Well, wait a minute. We're saved by grace, but the Bible says we're going to be judged according to our works. How does that work? Well, the only way I can ever make that work completely is, yes, I'll be judged according to my works, but it's the works imputed to my account. I'm going to be judged based off Christ's works, which are imputed to me, which kept all of the law, which did all of the works. So therefore I will be saved by works but it's the works of Christ not my works. That's the only way for me to make make it make any sense. But in Revelation or Revelation uh Matthew 25 it seems to be spef- specifically referring to the nations and what they did or didn't do. I guess you could just say that's the general judgment on works that and then and then we we apply my principle of well yes, Christ did all of those things perfectly. So I will be saved by works, but it'll be the works of Christ. But just Matthew 25, if it, if it is referring to nations, it does solve a lot of the problems. In the Old Testament, we have literal judgment that happens upon literal nations in literal time in history. We can see the fulfillment of that, like Edom, Babylon. We can go on and on and on and on. Israel, all of those chastisements and judgments. But it seems to refer to a future time, Day of the Lord when all the heathen are going to be judged. And if the old ones were literal, then the, the future one would have to be literal. And where do we find a way to fulfill that? Does Matthew 25 help? Don't know if it does. Does Matthew 25 seem to fit with fit in at the end of Revelation 19 going into Revelation 20? And if it does, then how do you explain what happens at the end of the thousand years when the nations are deceived? There you go. I'll stop right there. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Yeah, we just took Obadiah and we just threw in a lot of other stuff, but I really wanted to talk about that day of the Lord concept. I didn't want to just, I didn't want our study of Obadiah to just ignore that phrase, ignore that phrase. Now in the discord channel, Someone created a chart that uses, looks at every time that phrase is used throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord or its variations. And I, I want to I work through that chart at some point. I'll probably wait till I can have people back here in the church and just go through every single one of them, take the time and see what we find. So we may have to do a separate study on the day of the Lord on its own. And we will try to do that within the next couple of weeks, clearly within a month. Um, but at least now you have something you, you can figure out what to do with basically Obadiah one, verse 15 to the end of the chapter is that judgment against nations that go beyond Edom, all of God's enemies. And does that talk about the restoration of Israel? And if all, if everything before that was literal, then all of that has to be literal. And how do you make it all work? Well, I've given you at least a possible idea. All right. I'll stop right there. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening. God bless.